When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalara, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this one uh, comes to you on Valentine's Day, so a very happy Valentine's Day to all of you. And um, while it's Valentine's Day, I think it's important to talk about heart health, and it is the heart month. and um, I think I'm really honored and ecstatic to have uh, a colleague uh, on today's show who um, has done some seminal novel work in acute myocardial infarction. Um, so I'm going to introduce him formally. Dr. Rohan Dharmakumar is the executive director of the Cranert Cardiovascular Research Center at Indiana University School of Medicine, my new home. And, um, you know, Rohan joins us uh, to talk about his work, which was published earlier this year, actually last month, in Journal of the American Medical, uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Jack, on hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. So Rohan, uh, thank you so much for doing this for us and welcome on the show. Yeah, thank you, uh, Ankur. Real pleasure to be here. I'm going to start asking you, uh, about the concept of hemorrhagic myocardial infarction, you know why? First off, how did you stumble upon this um, this concept, and if you can, you know, educate us more about the subtype of hemorrhagic myocardial infarction from some of the other garden variety myocardial infarctions that we see as cardiologists. Yeah, so um, it actually is serendipity how um, I got started in this. I met. Uh, um, you know, one of my earliest collaborators, um, Dr. Andres Kumar, while I was visiting in Calgary, it was in, I think it was 2005 or so. And we got talking about how um, there could be hemorrhagic myocardial happening, hemorrhagic myocardial infarctions that are happening um, in uh, in heart attack patients. But, um, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of parallel with that, with, you know, hemorrhagic stroke and, you know, we were at that point, you know, kind of spitballing about ideas where um, hemorrhage may actually be um, not a good thing to happen uh, when you're revascularizing patients. And so that's that's sort of the introduction in, in many ways. Um, but perhaps before that, you know, there's some work that was going on from my, you know, starting days in, in Toronto in Grand Rights Group. They were also studying hemorrhagic infarction in, in large animal models. So there's sort of a, a, a preformed idea in my mind uh, about hemorrhagic infarction, but it wasn't something that I was studying very actively or even 
got started in it until uh, I, I really uh, met Dr. Uh, Andres Kumar, um, who's now in Sudbury, um, doing a lot of great, uh, good work in hemorrhaging. And we still collaborate, and he's actually one of the collaborators in this paper. And so, and then, so we said there was a lot of activity that was starting around 2005, 2006 around hemorrhagic infarction because MRI has um, become a, a novel tool for assessing uh, tissue injury. Um, and, um, and so we said, well, you know, um, and Andres at that time was developing a method um, and validating it. Um, that's based on MRI uh, for imaging uh, intermyocardial hemorrhage. And a lot of this work was, was done uh, using large animal models. And, um, and he was testing it in patients as well. And so he had validated this method called T2-star weighted MRI uh, approach for imaging intermyocardial hemorrhage. But the concept that hemorrhage may actually be bad uh, did not emerge till about 2009 timeframe with uh, uh, work uh, by Ganami and others that was published in the European Heart Journal, which said, uh, you know, we, we did studies in patients, I think it was around 50 patients or so that they studied um, that they could identify to be hemorrhagic versus non-hemorrhagic. And they, they showed that in following patients over a four-month period that um, that the remodeling uh, that happened uh, in these patients were, um, you know, at four months were different from the patients that didn't have hemorrhagic infarction. And, you know, on the backdrop of all of this is this concept of, you know, large MIs do poorly, right? And that's a fairly uh, accepted concept. And so people said, well, yeah, that's because, you know, large because those hemorrhagic infarcts are large and that's really why um you know why those uh, why those patients actually see adverse remodeling in their hearts and and go on to develop heart failure and things but so we were we were at that time even you know 2007 and 2008 this time we were thinking well how how can we show hemorrhage is actually bad in the heart like instead of just following patients or what what can we do that could start getting us closer to understanding how bad hemorrhage is? And so in that setting, we started to look at large animal studies. At that time, I was in um, Northwestern University in Chicago. And um, we were we were creating animal models, large animal models that would that would produce hemorrhage. So, you know, first time we did this, I remember it was an evening and you know, we, we had actually successfully created a hemorrhagic infarction. It was a lot of excitement with the group and being able to see hemorrhage. And we were seeing this with MRI. So that was the first time I actually had my hands really deep in it and to understanding this um, phenomenon actually does happen and we can visualize it beautifully with MRI. And um, so one of the things that we did, you know, at that time, the concept was that hemorrhage happens and then it essentially dissipates, um, you know, over a few weeks. And uh, some of the other groups were showing that to be the case in using uh, pig models. Um, but, you know, the infarcts 
got very, very thin in pigs, not very much similar to what we see in, in patients. And so for that purpose, dog models were, um, were good because, you know, they don't really thin out very, very fast and they're very similar in many ways to humans when it comes to acute myocardial infarction. And so what we would do is we'd say, okay, well, let's just make sure that we go through this process and try and uh, confirm um, that to be the case. So that being, you know, if we were to follow these animals uh, over a period of time, then we won't see the hemorrhage um, or, or remnants of hemorrhage. So, um, so we did an acute MI study with MRI and then, and then followed it up with an eight-week, um, you know, period after revascularization in, in, these, in these animals with hemorrhagic infarcts. And we did an MRI study. So I still remember sitting there in front of the scanner um, at two o'clock in the afternoon on a gray day in Chicago. And I'm looking at these images that are coming out first time. And, and I see this uh, at, in the infarct zones. There appears to be signal that looks like there's hemorrhage. And so this is eight weeks out. We're not expecting it to find any hemorrhage at that point in time or any residual from hemorrhage. And I said, well, that must be an artifact. And so I said, well, this might be some aberration uh, with the studies. Um, let's try and do this, uh, you know, in the remaining uh, animals. So the data kept coming out the same way. So we were seeing signals um, of this iron or, you know, this hemorrhage, which is visualized because of the iron uh, particles that, that, are, that are there. And we can still see it. So, you know, there's this concept of late gallium enhancement in MRI, and you can look at fibrotic tissue or so-called fibrotic tissue in, in the chronic phase. And, but that's what people did. But if you were to run this so-called T2-star method that uh, uh, Andreas had been developing, then we were able to see these very rich regions that were suggestive that there was lots of iron particles that may be there. And so what we then did is, well, okay, this may, maybe it's an artifact, maybe not, but we're seeing it in so many animals. So let's go and, you know, uh, get the hearts out and do, um, you know, additional analysis, histology. And so when we did the histology, sure enough, we definitely found lots of iron particles there. Hmm. So the question is, so the iron is not leaving the heart as fast as we thought it was going to leave. So what does it mean? Does this have any implications? So that led us down the path of looking at what does iron do in the heart? And, and so we did um, uh, assays that would look at, you know, newly recruited uh, monocytes uh, into that infarct zone. And what we were finding was just really exciting in many ways because it's the first time we were seeing this. Um, we were seeing a lot of inflammatory activity in that heart muscle um, that had uh, an infarction, but those infarction that had iron particles. Now, in contrast, in infarcts that were non-hemorrhagic, in the acute phase, we don't see any signatures from the MRI for them to be hemorrhagic. That's the, really the only non-invasive way right now to be able to detect hemorrhage. And when we follow them up at eight weeks, we don't see anything there either. And, and then um, 
not much of a surprise. And when we go into histology, we don't see any ion particles either. And we don't really see any inflammation either, right? So he said, okay, we're starting to see these, uh, these active monocytes that, you know, uh, that are infiltrating and becoming macrophages. Um, can we look at this a little bit deeper? At that time, I was transitioning from Northwestern to um, Cedar sinai Medical Center, and very similar questions were asked. You know, hemorrhage is found in large infarcts and this and that. And we were, we we said, okay, let's look at this a little bit more closely and look at can we see any cytokines? So we started looking at this and we started to see all the pro-inflammatory cytokines that, that were in the infarct zone, in the, in the iron-rich zones. And so we were seeing a lot of elevation of IL-1 beta and TNF-alpha and MMP9. Those are all characteristic of really adver- contributors to adverse remodeling and really alter the balance between collagen and elastin um, in, in the infarct myocardium. And we were also seeing that if you let these infarcts go for a little bit longer, they were also thinning out. And that's all can be explained in many ways by, the, uh, by these inflammatory molecules. So the question is, why is this happening? At that time, I met a very, um, very bright uh, immunologist, um, 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 uh, David Underhill. And he, he, I was just casually talking to him and I said, you know, there's these ion particles that are there. And he said, well, could they be in crystalline state? I said, well, I don't know that. And so so this, this would take us to another path to uh, Washington in the Pacific National, uh, Northwest National Laboratory, where we would study these ion particles. Um, and we were able to show, um, you, you know, the, those remnant, um, you know, content out of hemorrhagic infarcts were indeed crystalline. So this brings up a very interesting concept, right? Because you know that in gout, you have a lot of uh, silicate crystals that drive pro-inflammatory activity. So then we published a paper, I think it was in 2016, where we showed that um, um, hemorrhagic infarcts resolve into these chronic iron deposits that are indeed um, in crystalline state. And it's the crystalline state structure uh, that perhaps is driving uh, the inflammatory uh, uh, conditions around infarct zones. So so that's really my introduction to hemorrhage that would take us to a point where we would say hemorrhage actually does drive these type of uh, uh, phenotype of macrophages in the heart. Um, and then, but that still didn't answer this question, why these infarcts are large? And so that, you know, that would take us a lot longer to answer. And that became the subject of uh, this paper um, that we published in uh, January in Jack. I appreciate the long-winded answer. I mean, I think for a lot of us who our clinicians and take care of patients, uh, you know, at the bedside, or even, uh, you know, I mean, certainly in the cath lab as proceduralists. I mean, these are important concepts for us to understand, and and harbor and digest, um, because um, you know it could have 
ramifications in terms of how you manage these patients clinically. And you and I have, you know, have talked about this off off the line, certainly. Um, but, you know, fascinating as to how you stumbled upon the concept of hemorrhagic myocardial infarction and how that led into the work that you just published uh, last month. So, you know, just continue because, you know, I was, uh, you know, even though this was a long-winded answer, I was focusing and listening carefully because I was learning as you were speaking. Um, so educate us as to how a hemorrhagic myocardial infarction happens to be a larger myocardial infarction on cardiovascular imaging. So, um, so this, um, the story continues um, and starts to branch out a little bit more. Um, we were asking a couple of different questions at that time, um, around 2015 or so. Um, we said, does this have any ramifications on electrophysiological constructs? Does it change the electrical, you know, re you know for instance, are there re-entry circuits that are here um, because of this iron, uh, residual ion? So that led to papers that we would publish that show um, that indeed that, you know, long-term, in the long-term, there are electrophysiological consequences by the presence of iron. So that is that led to that direction of work and it's still going on. And then we asked, okay, well, we're studying these in, in, in animal models up to eight weeks. What happens if it goes on for even longer? Let's say six months or a year, year and a half. Now you can imagine that these studies are um, extraordinarily expensive, especially when you're doing working with large animals. And so um, really um, was super thankful for NHLBI to continue to fund us in a very significant way to carry on this work. And I'll have a, hopefully I'll have a chance to talk about some of the things that we're working on in that direction. Um, but the question about why these infarcts were large um, were difficult to answer because um, we know that, you know, if you tie, you know, if a coronary becomes obstructed, um, then, um, you know, um, how much infarct that is developed really is related to the area at risk. So the question is that, you know, for us, we needed to look at the, look at the data and we needed to normalize um, all our findings by the area at risk. And then only then we could dichotomize um, the infarcts into hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic pools and be able to characterize them as something that drives the large infarct or not. And the question is, how do you do that, right? Because the classical way of identifying area at risk um, is really sort of an invasive procedure, you inject a dye, you euthanize the animal and, you know, get the hearts out and you get the area at risk, but you will not be able to assess the size of the infarcts in a sort of a, you know, temporally resolved fashion after the infarct period. So that was one challenge, but we were thinking, well, you know, there's this method that was coming out from NIH, uh, Doc, Dr. Andrew Rice group and and also uh, in connection with Matthias Friedrich, they were describing a concept called T2 MRI, and that can potentially give us area at risk. But then it really devolved into a, you know, um, a lot of, you know, um, complicated 
questions that people were asking that, you know, essentially was not everybody was on board with that concept of T2-based area at risk. So we didn't really have an imaging-based uh, approach for looking at area at risk and then be able to assess um, um, assess infrared size over a period of time. So um, fortunately, around that time also, Siemens was releasing their scanner. Um, it's a, a very novel scanner at that time. It was a whole body PET MRI system. And um, what that allowed us to do is allowed us to collect uh, PET data, um, you know, and, and some of you may know that PET is really the gold standard in, in terms of looking at blood flow, although these days MRIs as well, but PET was the standard at that time and still in many ways it is. And then MRI uh, can also be, MRI data can also be simultaneously acquired. So MRI would give us, um, you know, ability to characterize the size of the infarct. And that's really sort of, a, you know, a gold standard that was developed by um, Bob Judd and Ray Kim when they were at Northwestern um, and, and continued to do fantastic work with that and really became a, a big story to tell in cardiac MRI. So we were really used, you know, we've, we just, it just clicked to us that, look, you know, we may be able to look at, you know, really true gold standards in vivo with both of these methods. And so we said, okay, let's try and do this cardiac uh, PET MRI uh, approach. So for this, what we did is we were working with um, a, a wonderful collaborator of mine, Frank Prado and colleagues in, 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 in London, Ontario, in Canada. And we would do these studies what we would do is we would, uh, you know, uh, prep the animal and have a snare uh, around a mid LED, um, and we would bring the animal into the MR scanner, and essentially we will create the infarct by tying that coronary for a very controlled period of time, uh, and during that time we would acquire both the MRI and PET, and. What this allowed us to do is to look at volumetrically, we were able to look at uh, the perfusion territory, um, essentially the area at risk, um, which is really the territory uh, within which infarcts develop. And the whole idea of reperfusion therapy is to really limit the infarct size within that area at risk to be as small as possible. So one concept around the ischemia is that, you know, you want to limit ischemia so you don't have uh, so much of an infarct burden with inside the area at risk. So, you know, so goes the, the you know, the, the phrase time is muscle. So, so we know, we all know that longer the ischemia period, um, the bigger the infarct, right? And so um, obviously we've gotten a lot better in terms of reducing the infarct size. Um, so these animals that were getting infarcted uh, inside the magnet, um, you know, it's a very lengthy study um, that involves collecting MRI data uh, and, and PET data at the same time, uh, and then quantifying uh, the area at risk and quantifying the infarct size um, really one hour after revascularization. Um, but also looking at the uh, looking at the area at risk prior to revascularization based on PET. 
So then what we would do is we would recover these animals and we would, you know, scan them every 24 hours. So we would scan them at 24 hours, 48 hours and 72 hours and five to seven days. And we would also scan them at eight weeks. And when we started to pull the data in in the right way, based on evidence of uh, uh, hemorrhage on on the basis of MRI data, um, what we were able to see was really remarkable. What we found was that when we normalized for the area at risk and we looked at the infarct size, there was absolutely no difference in infarct size at the time uh, you know, one hour after revascularization. So that is essentially telling us that the infarcts that have happened up to that point, whatever the size it is, that is indifferent between infarcts that were hemorrhagic versus non-hemorrhagic, which we will find out, you know, at three days post-revascularization on MRI, they did not have any difference in infarct size. So the ischemia is the only factor that determined the infarct size at that time. Makes sense. But then once we started to look at the data um, over a period of time, you know, at 24 hours, 48 hours, and 72 hours, the, the way this whole picture was evolving was fundamentally different um, in that the infarct size on uh, non-hemorrhagic infarcts were relatively, you know, any changes that happened there were typically about no more than 20% or so increase from the time point of, um, you know, one hour after revascularization. This is 24 hours, 48 hours, I think. And, and it peaks around 48 to 72 hours or so, this this sort of plus minus 20%. Well, not plus minus, really plus, maximum of 20% increase. And that's that's known, known to occur um, that's been the term that people use is ischemia reperfusion injury. And so that's explainable. But then when you look at the infarcts that became hemorrhagic, that was massively different. It was fourfold increase. So it was the infarct size really increased by 80% or more on the infarcts that were hemorrhagic. Remember, the area at risk was the same or the normalized area at risk to the infarct size at one hour was the same. But then now when you're looking at it at even 24 hours, the infarct size is fourfold bigger and remains that way over that one week period in hemorrhagic infarcts. And it's a totally different case in cases where you do not have hemorrhagic infarcts. Now, you know, we, we... thought, well, people might say, well, this could be, you know, this hemorrhage is making the whole muscle area bigger and everything else like this. And so we said, okay, let's also look at what uh, the scar burden is um, by eight weeks. You know, a lot of the edema is resolved and things like that. And when you look at the scar burden, it's absolutely the same case we found uh, with the infarct size. So the scar burden is actually um, multifold higher in hemorrhagic infarcts versus non-hemorrhagic infarcts, supporting the concept that hemorrhage is actually a major driver of uh, infarct size. Now, so this is all good. This is, you know, essentially, you know, um, Reimer and Jennings concept of a wavefront uh, that, um, you know, infarcts really proceed in a wavefront fashion. 
um, and really kind of capturing, you know, going from the endocardium to the epicardium um, with this uh, longer ischemic period um, was obviously, you know, it's, it's a hypothesis, but it's, it's really well accepted in the field to be true. But what we were seeing is also an infarct expansion that was post-revascularization that was also happening in a wavefront. Because when you look at the transmirality of the infarcts, that was also expanding. So perhaps not surprising, given the information that I've already mentioned here, that the infarct size was much larger. So it has to expand in some way. But we were seeing this sort of this wave that sweeps from the endocardium to epicardium and really taking over uh, much of the, the salvageable myocardium. So in these, in these animals, at least, we were looking at the, the, the infarct size and the, and the salvage. The salvageable myocardium is in, tremendously diminished. I mean, to the point where revascularization really didn't make much of a difference in these, uh, you know, in the final infarct size uh, on, the, on these subjects. Now, so this is all, this is all animal work. And it had to be done this way. You can imagine um, that, you know, we are imaging so repeatedly um, that it's very difficult to undertake these sort of studies in patients. So we said, well, what is the thing, what is it one thing that we can do uh, to look at um, how these infarcts actually evolve in patients? So we said, okay, let's take a look at um, something that we do know quite well in terms of myocardial injury, which is troponin. And so we said, okay, let's look at uh, troponin in a collection of patients uh, that eventually become revascularized. And so what we did is we did a study in about 64 patients at the end that we analyzed where, um, um, you know, we, we imaged, you know, we were essentially tracking troponin uh, pre-PCI and post-PCI, 12 hours, 24 hours, um, 48 hours, um, very similar to the way that the animal studies were done. And what we found was actually quite remarkable. Um, you know, we before I get there, um, we also did an MRI in these patients at, uh, at uh, three days post-PCI to identify who had been hemorrhagic and who didn't have hemorrhage. And um, and so when you when you when you take a look at the entire troponin data and you dichotomize the data into hemorrhagic cases and non-hemorrhagic cases, what we were finding there actually remarkably parallel what we were seeing in uh, the MRI and PET data um, in in large animal models. That is that the infarct the the troponin actually peaks very early within 24 hours or so in hemorrhagic infarcts and then flattens out, but it stays relatively you know, high, uh, but it's starting to decrease. Um, in non-hemorrhagic infarcts, what we found uh, was that uh, the troponin values would increase and peak around 48 hours or so, and then, and then come down. But during all of these times, the troponin values in hemorrhagic infarcts always remained high, you know, within that 72-hour period that we were looking at, supporting the concept that what we were seeing in animals can actually be uh, reproduced in patients, but now using troponin as a marker. So 
um, again, a long answer, but really, that's really what it showed. And uh, that establishes, you know, the concept uh, that hemorrhage is a second determinant of the final infarct size. We all know, like I said, ischemic burden or the time is really important in terms of how much muscle we lose, but hemorrhage um, really does uh, look like um, another major determinant of uh, infarct size. Yeah, no, this is just um, an excellent uh, chronology of events uh, leading up to the concept of hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. And congratulations to, you know, years of work from you and your team, uh, I think across the spectrum of different institutions now, as you, as you explained so eloquently, that have led us to, um, you know, where we are today. Um, I'm going to spend the, the last maybe five to eight minutes of the podcast. And, you know, thanks for all the explanation and all the education. As to where do you see this work moving forward in terms of its clinical application? Because, you know, uh, you know, this is an important signal. I think it's got important prognostic value for our patients. And is there anything we can do to mitigate hemorrhage uh, in, in a subset of patients with myocardial infarction? And how do we go about uh, the application of this incredible knowledge uh, clinically at the bedside? Great question. Um, and that's really, um, you know, going to be the next frontier, I feel, uh, for hemorrhagic infarction. So, you know, with my move from Cedar sinai we, we did tremendous amount of work, um, wonderful collaborators. Uh, now, here uh, in Indiana, we want to um, take the next steps uh, on hemorrhagic infarctions. So I would, I would um, you know, characterize the development of... Um, of things to come in three phases. Um, I will start with the back end. Uh, the back end is what I've actually told you in the beginning, which is really hemorrhagic infarctions leading to chronic iron deposits and a chronic inflammatory period that is a lot longer than non-hemorrhagic infarcts. So I think there could be therapies, um, you know, including colchicine and uh, other anti-inflammatories and perhaps even, you know, iron chelation therapies um, that can potentially benefit patients there that have already have had a hemorrhagic infarction. And, um, and you know, we have another paper that is evolving uh, that is showing that the hemorrhagic infarcts are actually at the, at the core of further uh, negative remodeling uh, besides infarct thinning um, and I think those, all of those can potentially be halted um, um, with, uh, with uh, novel therapy, some of them that are already in, in, uh, in existence. So essentially it's a relabeling for a different use. So that would be one, one area. Um, and the second is obviously, um, the la you know, prior to this, the second question I answered, which is really about acute MI size. So the acute MI size it, driven by hemorrhage um, has a lot to do with the components of hemorrhage and what it does to the cardiomyocytes. And there, there is also very um, exciting therapies that can be developed uh, to really mitigate uh, the damage um, that hemorrhage drives. So there are 
so essentially there are two components, right? So one is the early damage and then the late damage, and they're both going to have different forms of therapies, really trying to address um, the damage, the different types of damages that come out from uh, the different phases of hemorrhagic infarction. So that is uh, two phases, but there's a third phase. Um, well, there's essentially, you know, phase one in many ways is that how do we think about reducing hemorrhage? Is, are there ways of reducing hemorrhage? So that information is evolving from, you know, a meta-analysis that, you know, Raj Gupta uh, at uh, Toledo is really uh, working on. And then it's showing that there are um, critical conditions that can actually drive hemorrhage in one person over the other, not just ischemic burden. Clearly that matters as well. So the question then is that, are there ways that we can minimize the, the, the possibility of the development of hemorrhage, um, even at the level of, um, you know, when, when PCI is being performed? So, you know, there's some concepts that, that we are working on, but I'm sure there's lots of different ways of looking at this. So if I were to kind of put all of this together, you know, I would describe this very um, much in this way. There's a phase one, which would involve prevention of hemorrhage or really reducing uh, the, the, the evolution of hemorrhage. The second phase, which would be associated with limiting the infarct size um, because of hemorrhage. And the third phase, hemorrhage has already happened. What do we do now? And that would be a, potentially a pharmacological therapy there to reduce the inflammatory uh, period uh, or the, the extent of inflammation that is uh, really engulfing that infarct zone and really causing adverse remodeling. So I think there's a number of different places that we can actually intervene. And um, I think this is going to be a very exciting period uh, to continue this work and really, you know, really kind of settle the questions on um, how hemorrhage actually drives real adverse outcomes uh, in post-MI patients. You know, excellent uh, synopsis of clinical uh, applications there, Rohan. Uh, congratulations for, you know, all the work that you've done um, to expand this knowledge base and to educate us more about hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. Any closing remarks for the episode and for the podcast? Um, and, you know, where, where do you see um, cardiac MR um, evolve and develop in, in clinical applications? Uh, thank you. Um, um, I think cardiac MR is a, a very um, exciting tool to characterize tissue and tissue damage and to serially assess the efficacy of therapies. I think that's really where cardiac MR is going to shine. It has already done that in the space of thalassemia and how we control iron in the heart so that patients don't get into chronic heart failure. So this would be another example, of course, the number of patients that we can actually have an impact on and really, you know, limit the time uh, before they can even develop or hopefully even prevent the development of heart failure, um, I think is going to be uh, driven uh, largely by our ability to do these non-invasive imaging, um, you know, use those methods like MRI. Um, so I think I think imaging will play a big role, but I think there's a lot of activity um, that even in my group that are there that can actually do some things, perhaps not even without imaging, 
to be able to uh, look at hemorrhagic infarction. And I think that that's going to be another area um, that is going to be coming up um, as well. Um, but you know, last I want to make I want to take the opportunity to really thank so many people that have uh, contributed to the development of these ideas uh, and concepts and, and constructs and things that have enabled us to really um, understand what hemorrhagic infarction is. Clearly, there's more to do, but I think, um, you know, looking back um, 15, 20 years, uh, I think we have come a long way in our understanding of hemorrhagic infarction. So for that, I'm really excited and really looking forward to the future uh, research that, uh, that we will be doing. Well, excellent. Uh, thanks again, uh, Rohan, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.